begin our class. And um, I was just telling the other guys, the other folks here, that we're finishing, well, I mentioned this, we're finishing up our section on biblical criticism tonight. Next week, we're going to start talking about the canon of Scripture, how the books that we have in Scripture, how how we got those books, and why they are considered the inspired, infallible rule, rule of God. So that's putting the canon together. And the whole reason for this class is an apologetic. I want you guys to be able to, first of all, be aware of some of these um, objections. Again, they're sophisticated ones. And a lot of people, even Christians, who've been Christians for a long time, start to question their faith or they don't have an answer or, or really can't respond in any way. And it, it rattles them. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to rattle us. And so part of this ministry is to equip and to say, wait, there are good biblical answers, solid answers for what we believe. And this is a big deal with this with this biblical criticism. So last week we talked about the variants. And this, this was a big deal. This is what people throw at you. Your Bible is so full of mistakes. Your Bible has so many errors in it. How can it be from God? Who's, you know, he, he's without error. How, how can you have errors in your scripture and different parts that say different things and so forth? And so we talked about just a quick review. Well, let me pray, then we'll do a quick review, and then we'll get into tonight's lesson. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you. I thank you for everybody here tonight, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to, to grow in our confidence in your sure word and believe by faith absolutely but also be willing, be able to have an answer for the hope that lies within us, to explain with all patience and gentleness and kindness to those who bring objections, Lord, that you may use our answers in that realm to bring them closer to you, to bring them to, to a place where, where the gospel is able, we're able to preach the gospel and penetrate the heart. So, Lord, bless this time and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So... We talked about those pesky variants. I wish I had my outline from last week. Does anybody have their outline from last week? Oh, Andy, come through the flush. <laughs> That's why I can do a quick review. <laughs> um, and we talked very quickly about two attitudes that we want to avoid when it comes to variants. Now, a variant is any um, where, where you have two texts and they're not exactly the same. So remember... These were all handwritten copies. So Paul wrote his copy, and somebody copied that, and somebody copied that. And each, except for Paul's, except for the originals, which we don't have, um, you're going to have spelling errors. You're going to have errors in structure. Sometimes we'll very quickly go through some of those. But the two attitudes we want to avoid as Christians, number one is radical skepticism. We don't want to say that, oh, no, there's no way to get back to the originals. You can't get back there. No, we're working our way back, and we certainly have great confidence that what we have in Scripture is the actual Word of God. He's preserved it. Now, remember, He's preserved it. He's kept it, and we know that. But even beyond that, we have those copies that bring us back close to what, or bring us back to the originals. Um, the Bible can't be viewed just any other book because it's not. There's a supernatural element to it. Uh, but on the other hand, we have to we have to avoid having absolute certainty in in the fact that yes, the Bible is the Word of God, but there are words in the Bible that again are 
are are variants. They are not. They're spelling errors. There sometimes there's um, words that have been added. We we looked at that. The different kinds of variants, omission. Sometimes a scribe would forget a word. It's not in there. Sometimes they would add words, and we talked about that. What are the two biggest variants in the New Testament? Do you guys remember? From no, no, not A. I would just say that's the the biggest. Yeah, the, the movable new. You know, A apple, N apple. Yeah, that that counts. But the big sections of scripture, many passages. Uh, the woman caught in adultery. The woman caught in adultery, and we see that that was added on. You could see by looking at the text, and the scribes say, "Well, I'm reading John, but now this doesn't sound like John in this part." And as they have all the manuscripts, they're looking. It's not in the earliest ones. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. And in the later manuscripts, it's found in John 3, then in John here, then John 8. They're trying to almost find a place for it. So that's one. And the longer ending of Mark as well, we looked at that. So that's additions, uh, transposition, changing the word order. This counts as a variant. So you say Jesus Christ. They might say Christ Jesus. That counts. Um, substitution, um, you might say when Jesus knew, and another copy might say when the Lord knew. Those kinds of things, they all count as variants. There are 138,162 words in the Greek New Testament. There are between 400,000 and 500,000 textual variants. So the people that don't love Christianity are going to say, see, you guys have all these errors in your Bible. But then we took a look at the nature of the variance. Like how much does it really affect the word of God? Then we saw that there are many. 75% of the variants are neither meaningful. That means they don't change the meaning at all. Or viable. They don't have a chance of going back to the original. So that's over 75% of the New Testament. So right there. Those are the spelling errors. The movable new. That, that kind of thing. Um, about 25% are meaningful but not viable. So we talked about First Thessalonians. Did Paul say we were gentle among you like children or we were gentle among you like nursing mothers? That, that kind of thing. So, you know, it doesn't change the meaning or have an effect on it. And then there's less than 1% that are meaningful and viable. We talked about Revelation 13.8, Mark 9.29, about prayer and fasting. You know, that's important. And Romans 8.1. So we looked at those last week. And, and I hope that it gave you confidence um, to, 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 if you're challenged in this way. And people are always going to try to challenge us in every way. And so we want to do the best we can to have the, you know, the best answers that we're able to uh, help people along in that way. Um, even from this class... There might be somebody else in our church that said, you know, I was talking to somebody and they were talking about all these mistakes the Bible has. You could say, well, wait a minute. We could talk about biblical criticism now. You know, this is, this is introductory. It's such a deep field. And like I said last week, I'm like a practitioner. I'm like a, you know, a primary physician, right? You know a lot, a little about a lot of things. But then there's specialized areas. So textual criticism and the canon, these are fields unto themselves in, in, in theology. And you have men and women who dedicate their lives to this kind of thing. So there's a lot of great information out there. 
What I want to do is make you aware and give you a little some handles to hold on to so you're not blown away. Because there, there are some people that would say, what do you mean we don't have the originals? I mean, are you kidding me? And then, you know, that, that's going to be tough. So, uh, tonight is just a, is a, we're just kind of picking up from where we left off last week. And again, just to give us some more surety, to more confidence, not that we need it because we know that God is so sovereign over his word and he's keeping it. But from that human perspective, when people talk to us, we could say, hey, look, here's what the Bible has, and here's why we you could trust it, okay, in that way. So what I want to do tonight is talk about an embarrassment of riches, and that's what we have as Christians with the Bible. If you put it in a historical way, compared to other writings in antiquity, the ancient writings, his histories, and so forth, Christianity is so much more definitive than anything else out there. And that's just important. It's just important to know. So if you want to just critique it on that a literary level in that way, we have a lot where we could say, look, here's what here's what we have. And you're gonna if you believe Plato, like if you read a book or if you believe an ancient historian, then you need to believe scripture because scripture is so much more in by way of material and also closer in date to the original writings. So that's what we're gonna talk about tonight, that area. Um, just on your outline, the categories of the Greek New Testament manuscripts. This is how they know, kind of how they date. And this is fascinating. If you like this kind of stuff, you would love getting into this. Because like, how do you know how old they are? Well, the way they wrote, the different styles, the kind of writing. You know, just because they don't date. They didn't date their things, at least especially early on. It would be nice because then you'd have exact dates. But they could tell in certain ways. And in, certain, in some ways that they could tell is what was written on and how they wrote, how far back that goes. So early on, you have the papyri. That's the first one. And that's a plant-based paper. I'm not going to get into how it's made. But, but the oldest, as well as the fewest, however, manuscripts, about 125, are written on the papyri. So if you find the papyri, you know that that goes back because after papyri, there was other kind of material that they would write on. So it goes back to the mid-2nd century, so that's the mid-100s, through the 3rd century. And then that kind of went out of vogue, and and they started writing on other things. So you know it's in that area, and then they have different ways of getting more exact and getting back further. It's really, really interesting how they do that. Um, When you, They're numbered with a capital letter, a capital P, followed by a number. So if you see, you know, P1 or P52, that's Papyrus 52. That's that's how they do it. So they have, again, like up to 125 of those. Um, the next category is majuscules. That is, this is a way to kind of frame it at a certain time frame because these writings are were from, dated from around that, per- that period of time. And here's how they wrote these. It's really interesting. All capital letters in the Greek with no spacing. So if you want to do like a little experiment on your page, just like right, um, I love cars, just all capital letters without any spacing. And can you imagine just line after line after line reading that way? Again, but, but that's yeah. I wish I had, I wish we could do slides because they're really cool to see. It would really enhance. Maybe next time we'll be able to do some slides. And just bring things, bring things to life. Because when you see it, it's like, oh my goodness, 
how could they read that? But that tells them that, well, this was, this was that continuous text manuscript. And also, it wasn't written on papyri, papyri anymore. It was parchment, which is like leather, like animal skins. You know? So they, they really wrote on, that's, at that time, um, from about the 3rd century, that's the 200s, to the 10th century, the 900s, in that area, they have, they, they could tell that's what they get. So when they find these and they see that, they could say, okay, this goes back to that time. So you kind of get close to, closer to um, getting back to, to the originals in that way. And then you have the minuscules, and they are just the cursive letters or the lowercase continuous text. So, um, in the New Testament Greek, now it is lowercase for the most part. I mean, obviously, they have some capital letters in the beginning, but um, these were all lowercase, and again, continuous text, just straightforward. And that was from the 9th to 18th century, so the 800s to the uh, 1700s. And then they had lectionaries, and those are like what we have today. The books, portions of books. Capital and lowercase letters, not in continuous text. So it's really cool. Just, just to say, this is what they do. This is how they can know. Because some people say, well, how can they know? How can you get back? Well, look, when they find something, a manuscript, and say, okay, wow, this is on parchment. This is, this is well preserved, like with the Dead Sea Schools. And man, this, is a, this takes us back. So we know it's from that era. So they have a clue as they're getting back to, always um, oh, trying to get back to the originals. We currently have, and this is, do you remember these numbers? Um, well, I think I wrote them down, so you don't have to remember them. Um, we currently have approximately 5,800 numbered Greek New Testaments in the Greek, handwritten, so before the printing press. It might not sound like a lot, but that's a lot of, of Greek manuscripts. And, and there are many more that haven't been examined yet, so, but the official numbers in this, in this range, 5,800. Now, in addition to that, that's just the Greek manuscript, the Greek copies. In addition to that, we have non-Greek manuscripts. So when the gospel is going out, the word of God is going out, it's being translated into other languages. Two of the earliest and most important that we have are the Coptic, and that's like Egypt, the Egyptian church, and then Syriac. We have hundreds, maybe even more, maybe thousands, hundreds at least, of these manuscripts. Um, from from these church from the early churches, and um, we they're they're very important. They're, and they as they match them with the Greek, they're very very close. They have the variants, of course, but nothing substantial changes in them. Then, of course, we have the Latin, which is um, thousands of manuscripts there, different all over the world, different parts of Africa, just everywhere around the world. They're finding manuscripts besides the Greek. So we have altogether approximately 20,000, I say non-Greek manuscripts, I meant to say including Greek manuscripts. So there are 20,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament written out. Um, thing you need to know about them, the vast majority of the manuscripts, it would be nice if it was the whole thing, but it's not. Um, there, there's two early full text manuscripts. It's... Um, Codex Vanicatus, <laughs> about 325 to 350 AD. That's the whole New, Te- old New Testament. And then Codex Sinaiticus. And these are, that means a book 
500 Sinai, they're the mid, that's the mid-300s. The average size of the manuscript is 400 pages. Now, we have so many, you might just have a credit card size manuscript with the Greek written on it or with something written on it. So it varies um, quite a bit. So we have all these manuscripts, everything we have. Now, if you wanted to get rid of all the manuscripts, everything that we have, all the copies that were written by hand, get rid of all of them. Say we didn't find any. We haven't found any. We would still be able to reproduce the New Testament many times over. Do you know that? Does anybody want to guess how? If we didn't have any manuscripts, we would still be able to produce the New Testament many times over. By where it's quoted in other places. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. The early church fathers. The early church fathers and the early Christians. They quoted from the New Testament all the time. So they would write portions of the New Testament. They preached from the New Testament. So in their sermons, they did commentaries on the New Testament. So they would write down all these, all the passages from the New Testament. So on and on it goes. All the different other kinds of writings that we have from antiquity, from the early church fathers, we're able to reproduce the New Testament many times over, even if we didn't have one manuscript. So this is good evidence. This is a good thing to show people, especially if they're in tune with ancient history and how this works, the, the whole idea of the uh, writing and, and, and a- ancient writings and so forth. And it's really advantageous for us. Now, again, we don't rest on this. This doesn't mean for us, oh, because we have all this, we know that it's absolutely... We rest on what we talked about the first two weeks. How the Bible reveals itself to be the word of God. Its beauty, its majesty, the consent of all the parts. The scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. How it convinces and converts people to sin. How it teaches us how we ought to live. How it changes the world. How it changes lives. We see the, the continuity from beginning to end. The unfolding of redemptive history. So from Genesis to Revelation. Forty different authors. Thousands of years written. And, it's, and it goes together beautifully. You know, it's, that's beyond human ability. So we see that it's self-attesting in that way. Understand? But if you're talking to people that don't believe like we do, they're still going to say, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. But show me. You know, like, I believe in science or whatever. I believe in the facts. I believe in uh, you know, finding, the, finding these ancient manuscripts. So how does the New Testament compare to ancient writings? That's another area that that you need to be aware of and so we can understand this. At least you could give people these answers. Two ways. First of all, by the number of, of copies and then also by the date. How close to the original can we get? And when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the manuscripts that we have, nothing compares. Nothing com- comes close in antiquity. The writers that you read the histories about, that wrote histories on Rome... And we're going to deal with the historians. We're not going to get into Plato, the philosophers, or any other kind of writings at that time. It's the same across the board. But I wanted to keep it kind of like, okay, this is the time the New Testament was written. These were the historians at that time, or this this was going on at that time. So kind of around first, second century writers. That's kind of where history writers. I wanted to keep it so there's a, a comparison in that way. And it's not fiction. So... Um, the average Greek slash Roman author's manuscripts are about 20. So they 
generally, and that's being very, very generous. It's more like around seven or eight. But average, like the high end, we'll say there's 20. They give that, give that to them. Um, the New Testament manuscripts, how many did I say there were all together? They have about 20. We have 20,000. That's a big deal. When you're, when you're trying to, here's, here's the number of manuscripts that they have. Here's the number of manuscripts that we have. That's, that's very significant if you're thinking in terms of that. If you're going to believe what those writers wrote about history, then it just follows logically that you, you're going to believe what these writers. If you believe the history writers with the amount of manuscripts they have, then why wouldn't you believe what the biblical writers have with the amount of manuscripts that we have, which are so, 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 so much more. Um, all the manuscripts of antiquity, if we took them, and this is just kind of a cool thing. Again, I wish we had the visual, but I'm um, just have to you know, think it up in your mind. Um, kind of think of a podium, or maybe even four or five feet tall, maybe a little taller than a podium, but the average, if you took all the manuscripts that we found, the copies that we found from antiquity, from the ancient writings, it would stack up. If you stack them up, it would be about four to five feet high. Okay? That's it. If you took the New Testament manuscripts, all the manuscripts that we have, and stacked them up, it would be one mile high. One mile. It would be... Um, the One estimate was the Empire State Building in New York. So think of a podium four or five feet high, and then think of the Empire State Building. But not just the Empire State Building, another Empire State Building, another Empire State Building, and another Empire State Building. So there'd be four. That's how much manuscript evidence that we have, which, again, when you're thinking about this, you're not just saying, oh, mine's bigger than yours. It's not like that. It's very, very significant because it gives confidence that this is what actually happened at that time. So we're not just saying, oh, we have so much that makes it so much better. No, it's just when you're thinking along those lines, if you're believing the ones with the smaller amounts and, and, and you have reason to believe, why wouldn't you believe this? Okay, That's kind of the question you would want to put out there as well. Um, so, for instance, this is Josephus. How many of you heard of Josephus? He was a Jewish historian. And, he, uh, and his writings, Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote... Uh, regarding Christ. So this is one. It, it got some more copies in antiquity because the Christians wrote about this because Josephus, who was not a Christian, wrote about Jesus Christ in, in a paragraph um, and attests to him. So it's an outside source. It's all oh, you Christians just have Christian witnesses. No, there's an outside historian. Now, this is the works of Josephus. Would you like to read this tonight? This is what you say best in one of my sermons. All right? <laughs> Oh, my Lord, look how small, look how many pages. Read, this is his history. Okay, the antiquities. This is um, what we have. And people, people do not question the history. And they really should. I mean, there's good evidence, archaeology, archaeology, archaeological evidence, other kind of evidence that show that, you know, this is true. So nobody will question this. How many manuscripts do you think we had? Remember, we have 20,000. How many? Oh, oh, it's on the paper. Ah! Rats. I thought, man, that's good. <laughs> 20. <laughs> that's right, 20. Okay, so um, 
Another famous, famous historian, Roman historian, Livius, 30 copies. Tacitus, three copies. He's a famous historian in ancient history in Rome. So just the sheer number. We have thousands of copies. As we saw last week, also, there's no substantial differences or very, I mean, there are many variants, but nothing substantial that dramatically alters the text. So there's great, 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 despite, why do you think we have so many variants? Because we have so many copies. You know, the more copies you have, the more like, mistakes are going to be made in that. But when it comes to the substance of what's written, the doctrine that's written, besides a couple of those variants that they are able to work out because they have the manuscripts, they have the older and the later ones, they can see, oh, this was added in a lot later, but the earlier manuscripts don't have that. So what we'll do is we'll make a bracket or we'll put a footnote and say, older manuscripts, remember Andy, do not contain this. So you have notes in your Bible, but in the Greek there's a whole apparatus. In my Bible there's a whole apparatus that says, okay, this this manuscript has this, you know, P52 has this, but you know, later ones do not. So you can see where scribes may have added or places where they've missed. So the idea is we have the word of God. We have the originals in the text or in the apparatus that brings it in. So we do have the word of God there with full, full confidence. Um, so Livy, um, we, and, and it's, again, I, if you're into this kind of thing, this is almost kind of miraculous that you could stay this close with that many copies without all those variations and and have a consistent text moving forward and gives you so much reason to believe, especially if you believe all this with just 20 copies. And then we'll find them. Now we're going to move to the date. So it's not, it's not okay, you have 20 copies of that. They don't have the original of Josephus. They're not the original. The 20 copies. Now we're going to get into the dating. And this is what really is powerful as well. Because you could have the copies. But how far back do those copies go? Or how close do those copies come to when the original was written? That's very, very important. So, for instance, with, uh, with Livius. He is 59 BC to 17 AD are his dates. He wrote from the founding of the city of Rome. And we are waiting. So when he wrote that, and then copies were made and copies were made, we're waiting 300 years. Now, Livius is taken very seriously as a historian. There's really no question to what he's written. But it took 300 years from when he wrote originally to find those copies that, that he that he made. So, say he wrote the original in 15 AD. That's his hand, that's his manuscript, that, that's the, I'm sorry, his autograph, the original. The first copies would have been discovered around 315 AD. And only about 30 copies were discovered. And yet there's a real, you know, belief that this is the, nobody questions, nobody bats an eye about, wow, that's, that's kind of hard to believe, that, that history. No, that really happened. And, you know, you could read. It's very interesting. His his writings are very interesting. That's where we get our idea of how the Roman Empire operated, the culture, everything in that way. Olivius is a big deal. Um, The ones I'm mentioning are all big deals. 
again, they are their writings are backed up by archaeology, other sciences, cultural sciences, Pompeii. When when everything I was has everybody has anybody ever been to Pompeii? I was there. It's amazing. It's amazing. Everything was preserved because that volcano cave, and there were like there's people just there doing what they were doing. Yes, and you could see the streets, the the how far, and these things are in the history books, right? So that, but guess what? It's the same with scripture. The more archaeology they find, the more it confirms the things of scripture. It wasn't long ago we mentioned this not to, uh, in the other class that the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man has been unearthed. People before said, that, oh, that's a myth. <laughs> Come on, that's silly. That's myth. You can't believe that. There was not even a pool there. There is. So the more and more that they find, it really confirms what Scripture teaches as well. Uh, Tacitus is another one. 56 AD to 120. Um, we're waiting some 800 years before we see any copies of his work. And we only have three total copies of his work, yet he is regarded as one of the great Roman historians. His annals of the histories of Rome, he wrote on the reigns of the emperors of, of, of Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero. So most of what we know about them came from this guy. See? And it's, again, we, we simply believe it. Suetonius. 69 to 140, he wrote by everything, or most everything we know about Julius Caesar comes from Suetonius and, and his books. His biographies, he also did others on uh, Domitian and others as well. We're waiting 800 years before we get copies of his work. Now, we do have over 200 of his manuscripts. That's a good amount. But we're still waiting that long before they find the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies. Josephus, this dude here, um, Jewish historian. His, birth, his date of birth is estimated at AD 37. He's known for writing the annals, the Jewish wars, the antiquities of the Jews, the kind of history of the Jews against the Romans. Um, the oldest substantial copy was, was found 800 years later. 800 years later. Right? And we believe this. We read this and you're reading history. The first copy was found 800 years after he wrote this. So if you believe this, and you don't really have a reason not to, it makes sense. It follows that you would believe scripture. We trust these are well supported by archaeology for the most part. Um, okay, so is the Bible. How much more should we trust the Bible? Vastly more in terms of manuscripts, much closer to the original writings. Um what, if it, what would it be like if we waited under 800 years or 1,000 years, which a lot of writings of antiquity we wait for to get the first copies, you know, for, for us as, as Christians? Right. Um, on average, we're waiting five to 900 years for the earliest copies from the writings of antiquity. It's important to know. So when you're challenged in some ways, or people, and you're in a conversation, and this is a witnessing tool as well. I mean, you know, I know, Will, you were kind of in a conversation like this, right? <laughs> With the flight attendant. This, no, again, you're not trying to win the argument. You're not trying to say, oh, here, we got you. Say, well, listen, listen, there's things that you need to consider as well. Just consider this. Right? <laughs> so this is an apologetic. This is what this class is doing. Because um, I think even a lot of Christians wouldn't have a clue 
if you were confronted with this at first. Like you might say, hey, wait a minute, I'll come back to you, I'll go get some answers and you can learn and come back. But part of this class is to say, when you hear people say this, which they're doing more and more these days, because these are sophisticated arguments and they really think they got you. Oh, you're full of errors. You can't get back. You don't have the originals. That's intimidating. That's kind of scary for us. You know, how could you really believe that? Well, here's how. Okay. Um, the earliest copies. Now let's think about the New Testament. The earliest copies, again, fragments that we have are dated from the second century. That's the 100s. Um, from written from within 100 years or 100 years of the completion of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament was written from the early 50s to about the 90s in that range, in that area. And so we're getting the first copies, um, don't have the originals, don't have the copies or the copies of copies, but we're getting the first copies in this world, and I can't say the word, it's patriology, pap, pap, patriology. That is, it's like a sure thing. You know, these experts in this area would say, well, that's, you know, it's, it's almost like the ink is not just drying, you know, just dried if it's that close. It might seem far away. Man, we're still waiting that long. Compared to other writings of antiquity, this is nothing. It's, it's almost miraculous in some ways. Um, so, for instance, we could be here all night and all day. And again, I wish I could show you the fragments, the pirates that they find. Because it is kind of fascinating, you know, when they find these. Man, this was written, you know, in the, in the early 100s. And we have it in our hands. And it says what our Bible says today. You know? uh, so P52, this is a famous papyri, uh, Papyrus 52. It's a portion of John's Gospel. It's just about the size of a credit card. And it was discovered in 1934 by a really young man just getting into this field. And there were just a bunch of... Um, parchments and papyri he was going through in this man's library or in the library in this place and he found this and said man this looks this looks really interesting and and he, and he sent it off to um for the leading papyrologists of the day and all of them came back and said you know this is dated no later than like 120, year 120. Some said it might be in the one said it might be in the 90s. So very, very close to the original writing, which is an amazing thing. The thing is, the cool thing about this is before this, scholarship said that the Gospel of John could be written before 190. So it's way late. You know, it's like just the, the structure of John, this about John, the internal evidence in John. No, it couldn't have been written before 190. So until that time. Um, from like the 1700s to 1934, that a lot of the scholars considered John just to be, that's you can't even trust the Bible because John wasn't written anywhere near the time it should have been written until they found this. And then this little piece, that little, it had John 18:31 through 33 on the front and John 18:37 through 38 on the back. And it said hundreds of years of the critics to the flames, right? All that stuff. They had to say, no, you're right. It goes back. It's closer. It's that kind of thing. Um, what was that? John 18? John 18, 31 through 33, mm-hmm. and then 37 through 38. And what you guys could do is look these up. Just look up P52, and you'll get amazing stories. Like, uh, don't, don't go to the Wikipedia one, but find the one that's the biblical. <sighs> I forget the name, but a more solid one <laughs> site. But even Wikipedia will have, you know, whatever they're going to have, but 
that could be edited by people. Go to a more official site. But look these up, and you'll see the fragments, and you'll see, oh my gosh, it's amazing. There are brothers and sisters in 100, 120, we're reading the same Bible that we're reading today. Nothing has changed. Beautiful. Um, so, P66, that's another papyri. It contains most of John's Gospel. So it's dated between 150 and 200. Again, very, very close to the original. P46, Papyrus 46, earliest documents of Paul's epistle. And they're found around A.D. 200. So he would have written in the 60s, mid-50s, early 60s. Um, and they found it, found these copies in 200. Very, very close. Um we have 10 to 12 manuscripts dated from the 2nd to the early 3rd century. That's from the 100s, mid-100s, to the early 200s. <clears throat> 45% of the New Testament, of the majority of the verses of the New Testament, are found in those manuscripts. So what we have, 45% in those early manuscripts. That's a beautiful, that's a great ratio and range. Again, especially when compared with other, other writings of antiquity. It's noted, even by the scholars that don't like us, that aren't Christians, when they're honest, they know that nothing in the writings of the ancient world compares. They does come close to this in terms of numbers of copies and of dating. The problem is, like with the Bart Ehrmans of the world, they want it to be perfectly, okay, this is God's word, there could be no errors at any time, ever. It has to be maintained with all pristine, no variance whatsoever, because God is holy, perfect, and righteous. And you know, God is holy, perfect. So these need to be holy and perfect. That's remember we talked about the originals, yes. But then remember what C.S. Lewis said: once those miracles come into the world, they're subject they're subject to the world itself. So miraculous wine will still make you drunk. A miraculous birth still results in in pregnancy. Um, miraculous healing. People will still get sick. That that kind of thing. Once it enters the world, the bread that comes miraculously in the fish, you still eat those. Okay? That's and when these manuscripts come, even from the originals, men are still copying these, even though God's superintending, they're still he's using them, right? And they're still gonna make those kinds of errors. But they're kept from making substantial errors that say, Oh my gosh, this is a blatant contradiction. One copy says that Jesus was born of a virgin, and this says Jesus was not born of a virgin. Now that would be that would be something. That would be a big, big deal. Okay. Um, so we have all these things, and this, and I'm just going to leave you with this tonight because we're just finishing up from last week. Um, we're still going to end at eight o'clock. It always goes an hour, <laughs> or about an hour. Just think of the New King, or I'm sorry, the writing of the King James Version that was written, I guess, it was put out in 1611. Okay, the King James Version of the Bible is still very popular today. An amazing translation that we have. But here's what you need to know about the King James Bible. It was translated, the translators who translated King James, what we have in King James today, was translated from three Greek texts that were printed. Okay, They were, they were all printed. Uh, Erasmus, who was a scholar in 15, 16, Stephanus, who was a master printer, he was John Calvin's printer, and Theodore Beza in 1598. They all um, had, and they had 
some variations within their copies, but they all went from um, they all translated the Greek New Testament. So they, they had these three copies from these three men especially. Now listen to this. These men basically worked with eight Greek manuscripts, just eight. Now we have all thousands and thousands of manuscripts. They worked basically from eight manuscripts, none earlier than the 12th century. So they were working with manuscripts that were found in the 10 hundreds. Okay, forget about the early 200s. They were working with these manuscripts because they hadn't, they hadn't found them. They weren't discovered yet. And even the earlier ones that were, they didn't choose to use them. So they worked with those manuscripts. Since that time, thousands of manuscripts have been discovered. The earliest, again, going back to the second century, of course there's variations, but there are no substantial or critical changes at all. Well, there's one, and we'll talk about it in a second. But what, it's, what this is saying, they're working with manuscripts from the King James Version from the, 10, from the 10 hundreds, from the 11th century. Since then, we've discovered manuscripts from the mid-100s, the early 200s, and they match the same. It's the same, right? That's, that's, we're getting closer because we're finding older manuscripts. These ones are matching up. The older ones, are, uh, you know, the, the later ones are matching up with the older ones, which means that these older ones are correct, and we're getting closer and closer to the original. So that's the idea. That's the hope that we have. So if they have these later manuscripts and there's all kinds of differences, that would be a big deal. There are no substantial differences, no substantial. So if you read the King James Version and you read the NIV or the ESV, you're ostensibly reading the same scripture. But these guys were using manuscripts from a lot later than what we have today, and yet they match up without substantial changes. That's a big, big deal. That gives us great confidence, right? It's not like, oh man, this has changed so much. No, this is what they wrote then. This is what they had at that time as well in the in the uh, uh, 1500s. So those are those are really ways. Do you understand this? Is this helping you a little bit? Our dates were getting closer to the original. Nothing changes. No substantial changes. The amount that we have and the dates that we have show that we can absolutely trust what we have before us to be the, the, the word of God. And that's a, that's a big, big deal. If you believe these ancient history books, if you say, oh, yes, we don't question this, we don't question the philosophers, what, you know, what Plato wrote or the Iliad or anything like that, you would have to question everything because nothing comes close to what we have in the New Testament. right? Now, some people are doing that. It's called deconstruction, but we're not going to get into that tonight. But for the most part, we trust that history. And that said, we should trust Scripture. Now, the one thing is we're just going to end this portion tonight. Um, there's one passage in the King James that is that is pretty crucial. Remember last week we talked about the um, both meaningful and viable, that it's a meaningful change. It could affect the, the Scripture, what the meaning of Scripture. And it... Um, no, it doesn't go back to the beginning. It's not viable, but it's definitely could be meaningful. Does anybody have King James here tonight? We have no King James. Our King James guy is in here. Okay, on your phone, somebody go to King James Version. Put in 1 John 5, 7, and 8, King James. And then somebody in another version, just go to um, 
1 John 5, 7, and 8. Andy, you go to 1 John 5, 7, and 8. And Leela. And this is what I love about the manuscripts because where there were things that were added or even taken away, as we get back to the earlier manuscripts, you can make those corrections. Like you could say, oh, wow, this, that's somebody, that must have been added in because it wasn't in the earlier manuscripts, right? And, and, or in the majority of manuscripts. That's called the majority text. Do you have it? King James, First uh, John 5, 7, and 8. First John five, seven and eight. Seven and eight. Okay. For there are three that testify: the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Okay. This is a very controversial text. Leela, read yours again. For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Okay. Stop right there. That's yeah. That's cool. Do you hear that? That is a beautiful Trinitarian passage. That's amazing. If only it was that. Andy, do you have a little foot? Is there any footmarks or uh, notes? In the... It just says some manuscripts. How can he agree? Uh, okay. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, this has been a controversy for a long time because that is the idea of saying, boy, that's a real testimony. That, I mean, we have many, many references to the Trinity. Allusions to the Trinity, you know, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, Acts 20, 28, Titus, 1 Timothy. There are allusions, like talks about the, the three persons, but that's very explicit, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned there. And yours doesn't say that, does it? What does yours say? The Spirit and the water and the blood. Okay. But we're not going to do that to Jesus and talk about what that means. I just want to point out that this became a big controversy because when the when the King James was being written, Erasmus, who, who wrote the Greek New Testament, he had a couple versions of his own New Testament. He didn't put that in there, right? And the translators that used the Old Testament wanted or, or used Erasmus, but his first two editions, he didn't have it. But then some manuscripts were discovered, like one or two manuscripts that had what Leela just read the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it seems like the scribes really wanted to, you know, this is a good way to bring the Trinity into it and, and you know, make, make it a Trinitarian passage in that way. And um, it became very political in some ways. And so because of pressure in his third edition, Erasmus did put what Lila read in his edition. Those who translated from Erasmus' text, who did the... Who did the uh, King James Version included that in the King James. That's why it's in the King James to this day, where the vast majority of texts, I mean, this, these were a few late, later texts that had 
what Lila wrote, read, but the, the vast majority have what Andy read, and the earlier texts have what Andy read. So we could say with confidence that you know that's one of those areas where there's a difference, but it's corrected because, look, these earlier manuscripts, none of them have that. Just this later one, and there's just a couple over them that do. So the majority doesn't, and the ones that are closer to the originals don't have it. So that, that And plus, it was very political, and they almost forced, Erasmus didn't want to put it in, but it was a lot of pressure on him to put that in, and that's why he did it. So, But that's um, one of the variants, one of the errors where like, people might say, aha, see, there you go. But no, because we have the text, and we, could, we can compare them with each other and say, look, here's the reading, and here's why we believe that this is the correct interpretation and not that. So that's the kind of thing where you have the checks and balances too because we have the majority text. We have manuscripts, many of them, and they get back closer to the original writing. So there's a lot of confidence there. And that's all really that I have for you tonight. I just wanted to bring this up and this is kind of um, just be aware of these things. So if you're listening to something on the internet or you're asked questions by somebody or you hear somebody talking say, you know, we can talk about this, and there's good evidence to believe that this is the, the Word of God in every way. So, any questions or comments? Okay. Next week, we're going to start talking about the canon. Why are the books in the New and Just the New Testament. We can't do the Old Testament. Again, that would be way too much. That's way beyond my pay grade, and it would just be too long to do that. But, um, why do we have the books that we have in the New Testament. How do they get there? How do we know that they are from God? And then there's some very, again, it's challenging stuff. Very interesting. But again, we're going to see um, how God orchestrated that and how that works. So let's start that. We'll do that for about two or three weeks. And I don't know how much longer. We're going to like the week before Thanksgiving and then we'll be done with this class. I don't know how many weeks that is. How many more we got? We have October, so that's a few more, and then a couple in November, so three, maybe five more classes, but we should be able to, because then maybe we want to also talk about translations. What's the difference between NIV, ESV, King James? Can you trust them? Are there ones we shouldn't read? Are there other ones we should? You know, that kind of thing, and just talk about that uh, for a class or two. All right. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for uh, bringing these folks out tonight. And I'm just praying, Lord, that this is helpful for us to have confidence, Lord. Uh, we do obviously um, have confidence in you and your word, Lord. But we are living in a world that hates your word and the darkness. And there are those who want to distort, destroy, take away, Lord. Do, do whatever they can to minimize, to try to discredit your word, Lord. Try to uh, get those who believe in you to lose their confidence, to lose their confidence in the very word, your very word, Lord God. So I pray that we would be diligent in our study and in our understanding and not just give the simple answer, but the thoughtful answer, Lord, as well. Um, understanding that you have preserved your word, but you've given ample evidence, Lord, as well to that fact. So help us to be mindful of that and willing and able uh, to use that in our discussions, Lord, in our conversations, even as we seek 
to lead people to Jesus Christ. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.